And we are live with our 56th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky, not Stefan Edwards, um, who was on last week. Uh, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, uh, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Ken apparently came back from the land of palm trees and sand and beach, which is good. It's good because, you know, I was starting to get jealous and like had this serious like, you know, fear of missing out last week and was ultra depressed. So that's why Stefan came on the show. He was just trying to keep me sane, get me thinking about something else. Uh, And we went really deep into security or testing in general, not even just security testing, but just like software testing and where security testing fits. So if you want to listen to that episode and listen to the two of us rant and get really nerdy and geeky, go back and listen to it. Anyway, um, so today it's just me and Ken. Uh, it's, a bit, it's, it's been a while since we've had just a you know episode between the two of us, uh, but I did want to hear a lot about LocomocoSec. Uh, that's part of what this is going to be. We've got an AppSec Minute. Um, if you are going to AppSec Global, please, please, please sign up for our course. Uh, you know, the seats are going and, you know, we'd love to have you. There are code review course that we're taking there. Um, yeah, it should be good. I mean, I'm excited about it. Uh, both Ken and I will be there, obviously. Uh, and, you know, we always dig talking about code. So, so feel free to join us. <clears throat> Anything yeah, else, yeah. Ken, that we get to bring up? And it's only a month away. And that's the crazy part. Yeah. Yep. It's not very far. Yeah, we leave in just like a month. So <clears throat> I know. Um, and yeah, I haven't caught up on the episode with Stefan, but I am sure that it's like full of good nuggets because um, it's, you know, you're both smart guys and going, you know, talking about testing and um, mainly because I've heard s- some of Stefan's thoughts on testing before. Uh yeah, I just I'll go back and watch uh, listen to it because I'm sure it's uh, full of some good stuff. Um, yeah, there's a, yeah, sure. like, there's 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 definitely some good thoughts, and we don't need to get into it because we got into it last week. But uh, <laughs> he's, he he even brought like some graphs because we started talking about it beforehand on you know okay this is what you're trying to do with testing and how it actually like how we don't really ever get full coverage. It's really what it boils down to. It starts out, I'm on the positive side. And by the end of it, I'm like, ah, it all just sucks. Let's just, you know, move on. <laughs> I became the nihilist in that episode. Well, it's like what we tell people, um, you know, speaking of the course, we also tell people like uh, pretty early on, like the first day that, look, we're, we're taught, we wanted to make you successful, but success isn't necessarily finding every single vulnerability. It's more, yeah. you know, because it's not realistic. But what is realistic is to find the most high risk, high probability of being exploited type of uh, findings. That's more realistic. Um, but yeah, I mean, unless you have unlimited time, then cool. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but when does that ever happen? <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what is it? You know, 400 codes of li- or lines of code an hour, right? Is the, yeah. Like, metric, yeah, that never. Recommended happened. metric. That was the, you know, code bear or smart bear, whichever one that is, right? That, that's their recommended metric, but I, like that never happens on the security side. And, you know, we definitely don't ever see that, right? I, I've I'd never. Love hand, I'd love to hand somebody a sal for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's your, your new startup. Yeah, it's going to take us a year to get yeah. through that on a code review basis. But guess what? We're going to meet every day. <laughs> And that's going to be two resources, by the way, two resources, 400 lines of code per hour. <laughs> Sounds realistic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the, there's, that's just the reality of it. There's, you're not going to, you have to be realistic about your expectations of what you're going for. Yeah. Yep. What the cost is, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, but yeah, come to the code review course. I, you know, I've got some other resources that I, you know, I think we're going to release like the, cheat sheets and things like that. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll start dropping some of that on, you know, absoluteappsec.com. I would like to do a site revamp at some point too. Uh, We're getting way more episodes than I like realistically expected when I first built the site. So it's probably time for a refresh and we'll push, push everything into an archive section or something like that. Anyway. Needs more bridges, bro. Oh, that's right. 
Damn. I'll go take some pictures this afternoon. We'll, we'll get them up there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so I guess we can just go right into the, uh, the app segment before we get into LocoMocoSec. There's a lot to talk about from LocoMocoSec. So, um, yeah, I guess we can get into the app sec um, minute, which is number four on the Port Swigger top 10 2018 list. And that is... Uh, Need to pull up the name. It is prototype. Uh, yeah, yeah. You got it. Prototype pollution attacks in Node.js applications. Uh, are you familiar with this one, or do you want me to speak to it first, and then you can chime in, or how do you want to do this? Yeah, go ahead and speak to it first. I, I mean, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but if you've done a little bit of reading recently, then you'll probably be up on it a little bit more than I am. As always, it's a little bit of reading, um, and I'll give out the uh, yeah. Like, let me post the link to the to both the video describes this um, and the slides, put it in the Zachary chat. Um, if you could just copy it over. Um, and then here's the repo that has slides and code and proof of concept. There were two libraries where this, or two popular libraries where this issue um, uh, were, were found. Um, I will go ahead and just delve right into it. Basically it's, uh, this is a remote code execution issue. And what it is is when you can provide uh, content to the application, it um, like always is you know supposed to be we'll say a string or some JSON content type. And um, with with JavaScript, there's this prototype uh, prototype um, prototype uh, uh, method, right? And prototype means that, or the prototype method allows you to basically access a class, a JavaScript class, and then rewrite. Um, like write a function or rewrite a function, right? And so then it basically comes down to the similar things we've seen. Um, we've talked about it with uh, with Ruby since, you know, dynamic uh, interpreted languages suffer. They like, they have these features that allow, allow you to write code on the fly. We call it metaprogramming. Prototypes, very similar to this, where you can instantiate a class, create a function on the fly, and then invoke the function. And this is basically what the researcher is showing is that, you know, here's some instances of where, you know, user input was used to uh, basically access an object, which then you could access the prototype method on and then invoke or create a function. And that's really what it comes down to. And whenever you do that, you've got a remote code execution issue. Now, similarly, like this is, this is like when we talk about, um, when we talk about specifically like constantize in Ruby, um, it's a similar like constantize is a way to take a string object and then uh, literally just like create a class on the fly with it. So if you had like a string like uh, 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 I like uh, shell, I mean it, the the example I'm trying to think think of is like um, I think it's like log. I think it's log. So if you had like the string of log and you called dot constantize on it, you can make log a class. And why that's important is when you invoke a log, um, the log class, you can send when you instantiate it, a pipe symbol. And then after the pipe symbol, a system command, and it'll actually execute it. So I actually show that in Rails Goat. If you go to the wiki of Rails Goat, you'll be able to see an example of that. Uh, it's, it should be under the metaprogramming section. So, you know, again, it's not less necessarily picking on one language specifically they all have their ups and downs but runtime interpreted languages you know with metaprogramming they certainly suffer uh, when user inputs used to call these uh, is used such that they that a user's string input can can basically call a class define functions invoke functions and then pass parameters to things like that that's just dangerous anything to add to that Seth uh, no, not necessarily, right? Like it's, I mean, it seems like we've got these vulnerable libraries that we we end up depending on, right? And a lot of the the this list from 2018 actually goes back to those dynamic languages and how we depend on libraries that we may or may not know, or they have dangerous functions included in them, right? Um, so, like, like in in this case, right? I, I was just digging through the paper itself. Um, and it seems like there's libraries like the prototype pollution, the prototype function itself is deprecated, but
but it still exists. And a lot of these like these third party libraries that people depend on or these projects depend on still have that implemented. So even though it's on its way out, there's they still are there. And you know, redefining that, you know, that prototype function ex, you know, ends up executing things because of the dynamic nature of JavaScript, right? Um, so like, you know, I'm trying to think like, you know, the marshalling, unmarshalling stuff, the deserialization, like it all feels like it's kind of the same class of vulnerabilities, like these different uh, developer functions or APIs that exist on specific objects that we can take advantage of as security people to actually do things that are unintended, right? Yeah, I mean, the two libraries he points to are Lodash and Hoke. I don't know if that's how you say it, H-O-E-K. Yeah. But like this kind of dovetails well into one of the talks at LocoMocoSec. And one of the big things that I took away was Adam Baldwin, um, you know, if you don't know, let me back up right now and say that because of LocoMocoSec, we got a bunch of great speakers who have agreed to come on. And uh, so I've got to get dates out to them. And uh, we're going to have a lot of these talks that I discussed. We're going to have those people on so you can ask some more questions. But let me del delve right into Adam Baldwin's background. So, uh Adam used to be the, I want to say like co-founder or definitely the CTO of Lyft, um, Lyft Security, um, the org that was bought by NPM or acquired by NPM. And now he uh, basically is the, I want to say CISO um, or CISO. Well, yeah, because Lyft, Lyft Security was, they ran the node security project. They were the ones that built that, right? And that was the NSP audit that became NPM audit that is now, you know, built into NPM. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure what his official title is, but he's definitely over at NPM now and you know helping. Yeah, I don't know if that's his title. I know that he's doing that kind of work over there. Yeah, which is desperately needed, right? And he talked about like one of the things he talked about was the uh, the recent um, was it event event stream, I believe that um, the yep developer handed over permissions to that project. Um, also, I guess there's a couple of things that were interesting in that talk. So one of the things he talked about was the event stream or flat map or whatever it was that, you know, allowed someone to uh, backdoor a popular NPM library and distribute it. And one of the things that was interesting is he kind of pointed to it as a um, developer fatigue on open source projects being an attack vector. Yeah. Where it was just like, I'm done. I've been developing on this project for a long time. So I'm just going to hand this over uh, when somebody asked. And that's what the person did. They just asked, like, can I do this? And um, yeah, the project was handed over. So that was interesting. The other thing that he kind of touched upon, which I think is really intelligent, was, and I know this is true for me. Actually, I just dealt with it recently. When we do, like on a defensive side, when we do audits of modules, it's like there, I'm not doing an audit on every single module, but there's certainly like OAuth modules or anything around authorization and authentication that I'm going to look at, right? And other things too, but like, I'm not looking at every NPM module, but there are definitely NPM modules in my review that I look at. When I find something, and I'm just using me as an example, but you know, when defenders in general find these issues, what he was proposing is that we have a way for all of us to sort of like put those, put those findings out there, aggregate that data. And instead of like keeping it as like, Oh, within our org, we knew that this was an issue. So maybe we forked the audit or the, sorry, not the fork, the audit, the fork, the module. And um, after the audit and like, we keep a copy that's secure or maybe we, um, maybe we luckily went to the person and, and mentioned it, but who knows if the person who was developing the NPM module like fixed it or whatever, like it, it doesn't have to be NPM. It could be Python eggs or, um, you know, Ruby gems or whatever the case may be, Java jars. So I really like the idea of that, of like a call to defenders to have a way to, yeah, basically say, Hey, we found this stuff. Let's, um, Let's report it and keep a keep a list of it, which is something like David Linder, who gave a talk, was mentioning to me. You know, he was like, "Well, is there a way other than CVEs to, you know, like?" I think what he was maybe looking for was like GitHub, you know, having which you know is not something we're doing, 
but like GitHub having a way to say like, here's security issues open on these popular projects. So like, here's an alert, which we really can't do. And that's, it gets into some weird territory, but I see the, the, the need. And that's it. That's anyway, interesting. Cause yeah. one of my like initial, well, last time I was like an architect, right. You know, and, or I was, you know, embedded in an organization. That was one of the things that we did is like, okay, we're approving libraries for use on internal projects. Um, I mean, that, that was one of the things that I like mandated to our, like to our review team was, Hey, guess what? It's an open source project. Go check their GitHub instance and look under their issues list, right? Like we want to know what those issues are. If this is a project that has security issue after security issue, and you know they're having a security issue every like three to four months, and it, yes, it gets solved, but there's problems with it. Like I'm going to be less inclined to approve that versus, hey, there's a project that had a security issue four years ago. They fixed it within a two week time frame, and then they moved on, right? Um, because it's very easy to see actually what that, you know, what the development cycle looks like for those projects. That's not a bad idea. I just don't know how, I don't know how we centralize that. I don't know how we create a, you know, a repository where that information exists. Like, you know, I, I know that's kind of what they do with NSP, um, but that's only based on C, uh, CVEs, right? You know, and most of those dependency checks, that's what it's based on is whether or not there was a CVE that was released, not, you know, the, you know, the project itself tracking those issues. So yeah, and then it goes back to the same thing we always talk about, which is, well, first of all, it's all the, the normal stuff we always talk about with disclosures, right? Like, do you disclose it pub on a public issue to the developer and or like, you know, that whole debate of like, well, people know about it now, so it's going to get exploited if you don't update. You know what I mean? Like, it's that whole... It, <clears throat> I think that responsible it's responsible disclosure. Yeah. yeah, it's the whole it's the whole responsible disclosure and just disclosure process thing all over again. But it's like, I think what he's trying to say is having a way to to like make it pretty quick to flag these these things, um, and it being less about the like usually when this happens is about products or like major frameworks, but you know, there's so many little libraries that it, he actually gave a number out. Dang. I wish I had, I wish I had it in front of me. I think it was like General of, of the amount of code that is modules that exist out there as of last week, which I'm looking back through. Cause I have it somewhere here. It was some crazy number. Like, Oh gosh. I'm, I mean, you can go to module counts. I think that's our module count. Dot. Yeah, I think so. Here we go. I'm back to his talk. Oh, it was ES Lint scope that he talked about, by the way. I'm sorry. It wasn't an event stream. It was ES Lint wow. scope he talked about. Um, and oh, that one was used for. Oh, that was a different one. Sorry. No, oh, yeah, I was talking about event stream. So this is 962,000, so almost a million published NPM modules. Interesting. Yeah, because if I look on module count, I'm not sure where they're getting their data. Right, because they they try to aggregate everything. That's the one that I typically go on, but Node by or NPM by far has the most modules, but they're still only at eight hundred ten thousand. But I'm pretty sure he's got a better count than NPM does. He's they're just or the module count because they're pulling it directly from I don't know whatever repository, just whatever public information is there. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me, you know. But, that like I always like to harp on that in the talks that I give when we're talking to code uh, coders about like hey guess what you're never going to be able to review all of this because npm alone has something like 600 new modules a day right, right. and there, there's just no there's just no way that you can actually get through that as one person or even you know 20 people you know some of those are probably simple and you probably could review them but you know, there's a lot. The, the other slide that he had that I saw posted on Twitter that was very interesting was the, uh, like how much code we don't rewrite. You know, we're, we're creating a new project, something like 93% of the code that we use is not developed in-house, is not custom. We're depending on some sort of module, at least in the in the node architecture. 97%. 97. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your special sauce there's only 3% of an application, right? And and I would be like, honestly, you think about other platforms as well. I think about .NET projects, Java projects, 
And they're the same way. It's all the third party stuff that they pull in, whether that's from Microsoft or, you know, Oracle or whoever, that's where most of your code executes. It's not the stuff that you write. You're just that kind of top layer. 97%. Yeah, I know. I couldn't believe it. I was like, my gosh. And like, and then by the way, this is why I live tweet this stuff, these talks, so I can go back and literally look at my stream and be like, okay, what, did I, what, what were the highlights of these talks? Um, it wasn't just to make people jealous, which I, I uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I mean, at, le at least you posted like, you know, technical information. We had Dave Lindner that was just posting pictures of palm trees for a week and golf. <laughs> and golfing. Yeah. That's awesome, though. Good for him. He deserves it. Um, he does. Yeah, he definitely does. Um, yeah. So the other thing, there's one other thing he talked about, which I thought was interesting which was um, potentially breaking builds. And I don't remember if it was like going backwards or forwards on versions, but it was like when, because when you talk about the ES Lint scope gem, uh, the creds for that were stolen. So somebody just published a, I can't, I don't remember if it was a newer version or an older version, but um, what he was talking about was when these things like introduce vulnerabilities and we've got it, like it's a no, like there's a problem. We know it. We know which version has the problem was to like, break builds on meaning like not allow anyone to download that version, I think. And then it would just break builds, but it would be like, well, I mean, you need to like look at why that's happening and do a little bit of work versus because when, when that package was introduced, people, um, I believe it was the older version and people were updating off that. And so, or like not updating, but pulling it down, you know, cause they're, they're, they were, they're, yeah, they're locked they're, to that version right. or whatever. Yep. They're locked to that version. And so they're pulling that down. And like, you know, if that if that version was vulnerable, um, or sorry, if that yank if that vulnerable version was yanked and would and which is a, a build breaking step, then it would break those builds when they go to download that version. But like it would save them, you know, from a security standpoint. But of course, anytime you introduce anything that breaks anything, there's a lot of considerations to be made. So I don't know where it's going to, where, where they're going to land on that, but it's interesting to watch them kind of deal with this, um, this problem. Yeah, so like, and I wonder how that would actually work, right? There's so, there's so many people that use Artifactory or whatever to, you know, to pull down the versions that they want so that they're, they're not depending on the NPM public repositories for that. That I, I mean, definitely it's going to, it would probably help things, but I don't know. Like I, I have heartburn over that just from a like coding perspective and a, okay, you're a third party that you are now the one that's making the risk decisions for all of these organizations. Right. Yeah. And I guess like, so one and you're also, you're also taking that liability on, uh, you know, I'd, like I'd be surprised if, you know, where do you, where do you break that at? Do you break it at a medium? You break it at you know only a critical vulnerability, right? Like there's there's this really weird fine line that you walk from a business perspective, not not from a security perspective, but from but from a business perspective of that liability that you're taking on. Anyway, I, I don't I don't I don't think there's a good answer to it, but I'd be interested to see what Adam says about it. Well, uh, Philip. Philip DeRyke yesterday, um, who gave a talk, and I'm going to talk about his talk here in a here in a few. He gave um, he said he said something that like he he's correct. He said one technical observation from LocomocoSec is that we desperately need security tooling for the JavaScript ecosystem. Um, and he said a solid static analysis tool uh, to scan for potential security problems would be great. Um, when he says the JavaScript ecosystem, you know, I'm not sure if he means like Node.js apps and Express or if he means NPM modules. We need something, that's for sure, or if it's both. Um, and I guess that there is a, and I, maybe we can get him on the show. I met Drew and Brian, my coworker, was talking to him about this, but Drew, I think it's Drew Dennison at Return to Corp, who I guess there might be some interesting things that he's working on in that uh, area. And, um, Third party now, third part, yeah, because it's like you said, like you're you're taking on risk every time, and ninety seven percent of of your code being third party code, that's a lot of risk, man. It's a lot of risk. Yeah, I mean, real. You think about, you start thinking about it, and that's where most of the risk exists. 
And you think about the big exploits, that's where they happen nowadays. It's, it's typically not custom code. I mean, you know, honestly, like, you know, we don't see a lot of SQL injection anymore. Like, or if we see RCE, it's because it's an RCE in the in a core Rails library or a code node library. It's not the code that you're writing or your developers are writing. It's the, the ecosystem that you're depending upon. Um, yeah, so I, like, I, I don't think we really recognize that enough, um, but man, yeah, ninety-seven percent feels like I, I understand it, but dang, it it feels huge, right? That number feels huge. I probably would have said like eighty percent just off the top of my head, but if you like with those numbers that he's got backing it up, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and like just to back up for a second about Locomocosex and before because we can went right into technical talks. For those that aren't familiar with Locomocosex, um, it is a conference. This is the second year it's been ran. Neil, uh, um, Neil, uh, I always say his name wrong. Matatal. Thank you. And I work with him, by the way, so I have no excuse. Neil Matatal and uh, Jim Manico and uh, Jeremiah Grossman. Um, they they all live in Hawaii and they run that uh, conference. So last year it was in um, Kona, and this year it was in Kauai, the island of Kauai in uh, Lehu. Maybe that's how you say. It. I don't. Know. Let me tell you this: I'm not going back to Kona. Sorry, Neil. I already <laughs> told Neil. Uh, uh, I think it was Saturday or something. I was like, dude, you're not getting me back over to Kona after being in Kauai. That island is amazing. Yeah, and also that resort last year was really hard to sleep in. That was my biggest pet peeve. But anyways, um, so the conference is amazing. It's well run. Uh, if you get a chance to go, I highly recommend it. And it's and and it's not, I mean, gr- granted, it's in Hawaii. Yes, we all know that's awesome. But um, it's actually really focused on blue team defender stuff. So you've got people from Google, from Segment, from Slack, from Microsoft, from GitHub, from, you know, everywhere, really. Um, uh, academics talking about um, defending things we need, you know, not so attack focused, more about everything from program building, like as in your security program to um, the technical details of, you know, like cookies versus like Phillips talk, Phillips talk was on uh, uh, mostly around the different mechanisms between cookies and headers and, you know, JWTs and things like that for um, managing uh, state and identity. Uh, so anyways, really good conference. Um, one of the things I think is really awesome about the conference I wanted to give them uh, props for was um, like, so they had, they, they did a great job of diversity and inclusion and also making it a safe place. So like, for instance, at their party, they were very clear, like if you, you can have a couple drinks, but like, if you plan to get drunk, leave the party. Um, and then, uh, uh the other thing was they had like buttons that were like, if you feel comfortable talking to people, you know, or if you feel comfortable talking to everybody, or if you just don't feel comfortable at all talking to anyone, you know, you get a different color button, get a different color uh, lanyard for um, if you want to be in pictures or not. Um, probably more useful for our Gavi friends, um, you know, not wanting to be in pictures, uh, but there were a lot of good things uh, that they did. So it was very impressive. Anyways, back to the, the technical content unless you hear anything more about it <laughs> but blah, blah, blah. yeah <laughs> i was sitting on the beach for a week <laughs> yeah okay yeah so i mean one of the things i wanted to make sure we touched on so i'm trying to get it the, the, this right and I, that's why i have my phone out so james wicket gave a talk and you know i honestly felt like it was a pretty normal talk you know, it was about dev dev sec ops basically. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's funny when he said it, I didn't really even think about it. Um, I was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What he had said was along the lines of you should learn to code. If you're in an info in, in, not if you're in application security, not if you're in any part of security or, you know, in a specific part of security, if you're in security, if you're in infosec, you should learn to code. And Boy, did the internet not appreciate that. Um, Twitter, specifically, uh, there were two sides. There was no middle ground. It was, yes, you need to learn to code, or no, that's ridiculous. I can do my job without it. Now, some of the arguments were, 
you know, I've been doing this for a while and, you know, maybe I do compliance or whatever. And, um, I don't see the value in it or I don't think I have to, or, um, one, one was, uh, like, I don't really understand programming. And so, uh, or like, I find it difficult. And so like, it's not really for me. So those were the, the other side was like, let me, that's that side. And the other side was where folks like we had, and I mentioned this on Twitter, we had Chris Gates on the, the podcast. And if you watch his episode and you know, if you, he actually replied to this whole thread, by the way, and gave his talk take, which I will quote right now, because you can see his podcast where he talks about this, his pod, the podcast ep- episode with him on our podcast, a few episodes back where he talked about this, but the basic gist was, look, I've been in NetSec for a long time and it's with the movement to infrastructure as code and DevOps and things like that. Like this is uh, important. It is important to, to, to do code. So he's wrote, since I'm starting shit today <laughs> regarding security must write code, being on a team that can just write a POC to test something, write the code to solve a problem, tell a vendor to F off and build the functionality themselves um, or not be beholden to some third party to solve the problem has been amazing and powerful. So to reiterate, basically saying like, if I can write it myself, if I can extend it, if I can write the whole solution myself, I'm not beholden to some, some third party, their sales, whatever. And, uh, he said my last three jobs, it was okay to submit a diff to the responsible team. If you could, I've seen that build plenty of bridges. So that means like, uh, let's say you found an issue in an application and you just pull, you you know, you put in a pull request um, with the fix. It's awesome. And he'd said, I'd say my ability to do code reviews and do real coding is my biggest weakness right now. I'm working super slowly on the first one. For the second, I definitely hit up people smarter than me when working on projects to guide me. So echoing back to what he talked about in his app, in his uh, episode, which was he's learning to, to do more software security. And this is for, for many reasons, you know, like it's becoming clear that web security specifically is a good point of breaking into things. Um, Tanya Jenka and her talk actually, you know, pointed to that. She's like, yeah, um, we web, the web is where people are breaking in. So from just that standpoint, it's good to know. Uh, also, like he said, to do code reviews, if he wants to do code reviews, but also a big part of this is he and I have been talking about this since 2013 is that AppSec and NetSec are becoming very, very closely aligned with the fact that developers are pushing infrastructure with their, their code or their configuration files. And, you know, what are you, what is, what is your take on this, Seth? Do you think, you know, I mean, it's obvious, I mean, not, you know, I think we both I think it's it's an obvious no-brainer that if you're in software security, you should know how to write software and how it works. But like, what do you think for compliance and um, you know compliance or or even just netsec or incident response or something like that? So, like, I'm I'm firmly. I, I mean, obviously, being in appsec, like you know, if you don't know how to code, it, it's kind of like. Like you, you've got to have people around you, surround your people that do know how to code. Otherwise, you're not gonna you're not gonna get anything done, right? Like, and like even that, even within that, you tend to specialize, right? Like, I I, I always get hit up with people, uh, you know, by people asking specific questions, like, you know, like me myself, like I can do some rail stuff, but I'm never gonna jump in and be at the depth that like Ken is not without like some serious work, right? And so I've got resources that I pull from on that side of things. If I talk about like somebody that's on the network security side or like even like managing a SOC or something like that, I'm firmly on the side of anything that helps you do your job better and makes you quicker is going to make you more valuable, right? So whether like if we're talking about coding from as simple as, hey, you're shell scripting some stuff, you're automating things so that you can identify stuff quicker, you're writing you know new Splunk queries, so that you know you're pulling data out easier. Like I, I consider all of that stuff some sort of like a programming mindset. And you're starting to create these scripts, and you're starting to create like a body of knowledge around that. Um, I, I mean, yeah, if you want to go be an auditor, like a PCI auditor, guess what? You probably don't need to learn how to program, and that's fine if you're happy with that, right? 
and I like I, I really think this all goes back to like the level of drive that someone has to get into the industry. So you know, we there's nothing wrong with you know finding a niche that you that you want to you know that you want to perform, and then deciding that that's enough for you, and stepping back and not 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 doing anything else after work, concentrating on other things. You know, having your life that's great, um, but if you really want to excel, I, I don't know how you do that without learning, learning how things are built and learning how to code. I just don't. Yeah. I mean, I would expand beyond that, you know, like my take. So like if, if you're, you don't have to become, I think there's, I think we should define this. So like just knowing what like basic terms in programming are, or like knowing what, knowing a little bit more than just writing a, a very basic script. So knowing like what a class is, a module, inheritance, um, how functions, what functions are, what a rate, like what, uh, what object types there are, you know, what, what does casting mean? Some of those basic things are like, you know, you could pick them up in a, in a relatively, I say relatively in the scheme of life, relatively short amount of time. Right. Um, without having to be a full on software engineer. I don't think you need, I mean, there are plenty of people in application security that, that are good at good at it. And they're, they're, they're not software engineers in the sense that they are not uh, building the most highly optimized best code. They just understand code. Um, and that's completely fine. And I think it extends even past software uh, and programming to like, if you're in compliance or if you're in wherever, like you should know the fundamentals to, to I'm basically agreeing with you, Seth, because I think you should know like a little bit about networking, a little bit about software, a little bit about everything that you end up touching on. Um, and yeah, like if you want to be really good at your job and not dependent upon other people, I think that's the big thing. That, that's, that's the key right there is that, you you are no longer the more knowledge you have knowledge is power and so you're not dependent on people with the more you know the more you know the less you're dependent on pe other people i guess is what i'm trying to say it'd be like if i um really got into understanding how to like um you know work on my truck i don't have to you know go and, and take it into the um um, I don't have to have somebody else do the do, do the maintenance for me, and maybe not do as good a job as I would with enough care as I would. Um, so I wouldn't be dependent on somebody else. I don't see how it's much different. I think the thing that people, and this is what I actually talked about, James talked to James about this, and and I, he he's going to come on the podcast. We talked about this, but like I think what people saw there was him saying you should, and uh, you know that's never taken well, right? It comes off as authority uh, as, as acting as an authority figure as, you know, just nobody likes being told that they should do something, I guess. I, I think yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I felt as well that like there was a lot of kind of justification of, Oh, my current choices have led me to a job and I don't have to code. So you're wrong. Right. Like I, I'm proving you wrong. Um, and so it like, I, I, so I think it was kind of both of those things. Um, I don't know. Like I, I didn't necessarily, I, I, like I was with you, I probably would have just you know, nodded my head, been like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, that makes sense, right? You, you know, everyone should learn, you know, or everyone, you know, if they want to improve and want to understand how things are put together, you know, they need to be able to read code, right? That's that's realistically what it comes down to. Um, so, I, like, I, I would have done the same thing as you. I don't think it would have blown up. I, I don't think in our kind of circles, anybody's going kind to of, gonna disagree with that, but it's because we all are coders, right, at some level. Yeah, and, you know, um, I, I'd say the worst, the worst response I'd seen was saying that it's just difficult, and I'm like, yeah, it's difficult for all of us to learn these things. Like it wasn't easy for me to get my CCNA. It wasn't easy to learn about, you know, networking and protocols and CIDR notation and all those things. It wasn't easy to figure out a lot of things. If it was easy, I wouldn't, you know, yeah, you know, have have a, a good career and, 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 you know, things like that. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's part of what, you, sorry, I had to close the door because my cats are about to run in. Um, so anyways, yeah, uh, that's, that, yeah, that's hard. 
good justification at all. It's, it's a garbage justification. It's hard. Okay. Well, you know what? That's not, a, that's not a good reason. Well, I mean, anything that somebody's going to pay you to do is going to be difficult. I mean, uh, you know, we see this quite often, like on the consulting side, right? It seems that I'm getting more and more kind of manual code reviews and um, like hybrid style assessments, as we call them, right? Where there's like, I've got like running code, but I've also got code behind the scenes. And most of it is because guess what? Looking at code and figuring out what it's doing and figuring out where the endpoints exist and like what the vulnerabilities could be. It's not an easy task and it takes brain power. It takes time. Um, and uh, like, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And so like, yeah, it's much easier if I can find a static analysis tool and just run it against my code and be like, Oh, guess what? I'm good. I, I, you know, I did a code review because I analyzed this using an automated tool. Yeah. That's, that's way easier. I will give you that it's way easier, but it doesn't necessarily satisfy all that security stuff on the, on the other side. And I think we have a, you know, we have a tendency to want it to all be easy, right? Just as that's just human nature, right? Hey, yeah, you know, I, I just want to relax. I, you know, watch my shows, whatever it is, uh, the things that are hard. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I like, I, I don't understand that justification either, I guess is what I'm getting at is just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not worth it. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, yeah, that's just not a good enough justification at all. I I agree. Um, so, yeah, I guess what are the final thoughts on that? Um, you know, learn not. I would say learn not just programming. Learn whatever um, you can, at least at a basic level. Um, if you don't need to be a specialist in it, and learn, you know, learn at a basic level as much as you can. Um, Never stop learning, I guess, is a given. Um, see, and I, I see yeah. on the flip side, right? Like I could also argue if you're in security, right? You have to know how, uh, like how TCP works, right? Mm -hmm. Or UDP, like how, com how computers talk to each other. I like, and I've, I've met a lot of programmers that, that, you know, go their whole, you know, existence without ever once understanding what, what happens when they do an open to a URL. And they're always confused on why why the con connection didn't happen. And I'm like, okay, right? Like, so there's there's this like base level of knowledge and security that we assume that people have. And I, like, and that's what I'm saying. So if if we went on the flip side and went on Twitter and was like, hey, as a as an application security person, you should understand networking basics. Right. right. Uh, you know, all the programmers could get up in arms on the other side on the same thing. Well, I've done this my whole life without ever understanding it. I'd be like. Hey, that's great, but when you have a problem with the firewall or you don't, you're like you're troubleshooting your application and you can't figure out what's going on, you know, guess what? It's always DNS, right? But if you don't understand <laughs> how DNS works, you can't troubleshoot that, right? And it's like so. So there's all of these kind of base level things that you and I understand that people that have been in the industry understand, like that Chris Gates understands, but he also understands where these gaps are, and. And recognizing that you have those gaps is probably most of the battle. Like I, I have this discussion with, with clients that come to me all the time and they're like, Hey, can you do like red teaming? And I'm like, I can, you don't want me to, right? Because that's not something that I specialize in. Uh, there's people like Chris that are out there that are way better at that than I am. So I like, yes, I can figure it out. And I'm confident that, you know, with enough time and with enough experience that I could go and become a, a proficient red teamer. But guess what? That's not what I specialize in. That's not what people come to me for. So, yeah. I, I, anyway, so I, I guess it's just that, like, the fact that he said you should and you must that probably, you know, tweaked some people online, right? Yeah, I think that's ultimately what it is. But I mean, you're not, you're completely right because, you know, like from a networking standpoint, um, you and I have both stood up stuff in like AWS, for example. Um, yeah. And had to troubleshoot through issues. And that could be with mailers, it could be with calling a in memory database, it could be with access to a regular MySQL, Postgres, whatever database it could be like you said, some DNS, some wonky DNS issue. And if you don't understand, like, like, and especially when you set up DNS records, A types, uh, C names, <clears throat> excuse me, C names, MX, 
knowing those things, yeah, like that that meant that folks like you and I could end to end implement a solution without needing anyone else. And I think that's, again, it goes back to just being like empowered. So pick up a fucking book and learn stuff. That's my, <laughs> that's my summary. Well, uh, no, and that, that's yeah. just it. Like you want to be successful. You want to find your niche. That's what you have to do. Right. Like you're, you're never going to be an expert. Like gone are the days that you are an expert in all of information security. Those are just, it doesn't exist anymore, right? Like you're going to have to specialize. You're going to have to find your niche. You're going to find, you're going to have to find what interests you. And as a part of that, you're, you're going to be constantly learning, right? Like if you're not, then you're probably working at a government agency, right? I, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know where those people end up um, or they're at the same organization. And it, like, so there, there is a valid path there that, you know, you can do that, but I, you know, the, the industry as a whole is evolving. So for sure. So you're going to have to learn new stuff. You definitely will. I'm, um, I'm trying to look at some other highlights, a leaf leaf from segment leaf, Dreisler, Dreisler. Um, he uh, gave a talk on, uh, sorry to shift gears, but I know we were like, we only got a certain amount of time. So I'm trying to get through the other talks. So leaf talked about basically building a, uh, an AppSec program. He did talk about training and actually I guess their training um, approach actually did work with people or with developers uh, in that it was interesting CTF gamified. So, um, cause, pe cause people raise hands like, you know, it's local local sec. It's it, for, so the, the attendees, it's not a huge conference. So the attendees are also some of the, the, you know, some of the people I really, I would say we all really respect in the app sec field as your peers watching your talk. So of course people are like, well, did you find it actually worked? You know, like they, they, they definitely asked that question, but they're like, no, it did. Cause it was training that was interesting, engaging, um, you know, it wasn't some like SCORM compliant CBT or something like that. One of the things you talked about, which I just wanted to echo, I totally agree with is bug bounty, uh, bug bounty pay for everything. Um, and I think he talked about it maybe on our podcast. I know, I know I've talked to him about this before, but he like said that they pay for, oh yeah, he did. We've talked about it where they pay at segment, even if it's a duplicate, but like a well-written up, easy to reproduce, just an outstanding write-up, they'll still give them money. And then I guess that like, um, that was, uh, that's something I totally agree with. You should absolutely reward your researchers and create a good relationship with them. Um, be very careful in your responses when you don't pay out. Um, try, try to be as uh, try to engage the community, the bug bounty community, as well as possible. Um, the other thing was he talked about uh, 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 first, sorry, creating good first impressions with all of the uh, with developers. So that means like when they get new developers onboarded, is like and they're you know or they're like, hey, you know, you never worked with us before, but like we're going to. Um, work with your team on some new thing that you're building to help get ahead, you know, threat model or, or, you know, help you build it securely. Um, and, you know, things that can be not good impressions is like overloading them with crappy reports. Um, you know, we've talked about it before with people that run a bunch of, you know, like run a scanner, hand a report off that creates bad impressions. Um, you know, not listening well and, and, and not, um, hearing what their requirements are and then trying to find a, a sane, a sane balance between being overly paranoid and, you know, getting a product shipped, uh, which is something again, Tanya talked about, which was like, Hey, if stuff doesn't ship or, you know, we're a blocker, like we don't have a job, which I totally agree with. And I, I, I love that. And, uh, Oh, and by the way, I talked to her, she's gonna ch come on the show too, Seth. So, um, lots of cool stuff going on. Uh, in terms of guests yeah. trying to pull up the other awesome ones. Do you have any, um, Oh yeah. Um, so before I get to Neil's talk, uh, do you have anything else from, from there you wanted to ask questions about, uh, from any of the talks you'd seen maybe that I would, uh, oh, the, the talks that I saw, not the talks that you saw on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, I mean, it seemed like, so Tanya, Dave Lintner, uh, James, they all talked to kind of the DevOps, like where security fits in the CICD pipeline and like in agile development. So like I was, I was kind of interested in like what the overall theme between those was. 
as far as, yes, we should do security in, you know, in a CICD pipeline, but what kind of were the recommendations or what were they seeing that actually came out of it and what was effective? Well, I'd like to quote, I did quote on Twitter, Dave Lindner's uh, speech, and I, so I don't mess this up. This is exactly what he said. Uh, if you say the speed is too fast, well, fucking catch up. <laughs> and so basically it was that. It was more of like, um, yeah, okay, you run testing in CI. Cool. Like that's not the only thing that needs to be done. Here's some. Here's a sort of a summarized breakdown of what he said. Evolve tools to secure modern software, enable developer self-sufficiency, automate open source risk management, accelerate digital transformation, protect legacy portfolio, optimize penetration testing, and ensure continuous visibility. So that's six steps. And, um, and basically like, uh, so, and by the way, David Linder's talk was great. It was really good. Um, some of the things, uh, there were like maybe one thing that I, like, I was like, I don't know if we could do that, but everything else. And so here's the breakdown. When he talked about, uh, evolving tools to secure modern software, he, t uh, basically it was automated AppSec distributed across software development and delivery pipelines, assess and protect microservices and APIs native support for cloud apps. Um, so that's security tooling. That's, that's, and unfortunately with microservices, there's not a lot of great tooling. So, um, yeah, I don't well, know. I mean, I, I'd argue APIs in general, right? Not just microservices, yeah. but APIs in general are, are well underserved on the security tooling perspective. So, yeah. Um, and then he said from enabling a developer self-sufficiency, self-service application security integrated into developer workflow. This means like, uh, for instance, there was a breakman guard where you could, um, before you push code run, when you ran your test locally, it would actually flag um, things that you've introduced that were an issue. Like literally just your code, anything you introduced, if it was an issue, it would flag on and warn you. Um, I had mine hooked into Growl too, so I got a nice little Growl uh, notification. Um, so basically, the the idea there was going beyond just CI testing and tooling to like giving the developers a way to actually detect their, that you know that they did something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that goes back to the old like SaaS days when they were trying to put like you know Fortify and you know Ounce had their IDE plugins. Um, but they, they didn't work as well. I mean, you know, we have Eric on the Puma scan stuff works pretty well from a .NET perspective or a .NET core perspective. But like, I, I think that's a difficult one from a, it depends on how, who's coding and where they're actually doing that at, you know, like, but I do think, uh, you know, some of the ES lint, like the, or the lint linters that exist for Visual Studio Code and other things can can get you a lot of the way there. Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. I'm, dig I'm digging into the weeds and you're trying to give a summary. So. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I, I was actually reading through trying to figure out what, what would be maybe new to people. And I think the one I wanted to just, the last one on that I wanted to talk about was optimized penetration testing. Um, Cause we do that. And it, what he said was strategically, strategically focused investment in manual penetration testing on complex security weaknesses increase fidelity and action ability of results. So let me just touch on that real quick. So with us, we've definitely had, and Jason White can speak this, last one, we've definitely had consulting groups come in and we give them a very, like our app is huge and it's not like some people have monoliths, some people have many microservices, either way you have a lot of code and um, scoping the, the assessment down going back to what we said you can't have you can't, it's, it's impossible for us to be like okay you're going to review every single line of code uh within a short amount of time and yeah we're going to be good we're going to feel like you did a good job it's not it's not realistic so what you do is you scope down to what like is it single sign-on that you want them to take a look at your single sign-on implementation that you want somebody to a human being with intelligence to look at is it some new uh feature that you're implementing that, you know, has some important business logic, you know, scope down to what exactly it is that you're, you're, you're like, Hey, I, we, we've just introduced a new, you know, authorization schema. Can you take a look at it? You know, we, maybe we implemented can, 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 or whatever, whatever you did. Scoping it down 
and limiting how much someone's looking at and just having a targeted like second set of eyes on that thing is probably far more valuable than saying, you know what, here, take this big long lump of code and find what you find. You know, what do you yeah. expect to get out of that really? So I agree with that. I really like that. Um, it's something we do. And um, I don't think he mentioned it in his slides. He might've mentioned it in the talk. I don't really remember. Um, but you know, also, on top of having, I think you should have both consulting and bug bounty programs running um, if you have the team to support it, right? So I'll just add to that. Um, yeah, but that was basically the gist is, you know, looking at your program a little bit more holistically um, and, you know, moving at the, moving at a, a decent speed. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I missed out on that I want to, wanted to bring up. Um, yeah, I don't and I know they're going to post all the talks within the next couple of weeks is what I heard um, from the conference. So I, we, we will definitely link to them when they, when they pop up. Um, oh, there was actually uh, one other one. Sorry, Neil. I didn't talk about Neil's. Yeah. Um, so basically he taught, his talk was about how we um, went into um, upstream, upstreaming, um, upstreaming rails. So what happened was GitHub, um, and many other companies. And honestly, I, I joked with them that this was like kind of touched upon PTSD for those of us who have been in rail security for any amount of time. He gives a timeline that goes back about nine years or so, um, or maybe eight, whatever. Uh, that shows like the evolution of rails and how more and more security functions were built in, but how, you know, basically there was a, there's a point where you hit a major version where, and this happens on a lot of companies, you fork that version, you update just that version and it's too hard to move over to the, to the later versions. Cause they, they introduce breaking changes. Um, and he just talked a lot about that, pro that journey. Um, I think he gave, props to Eileen Codes, at Eileen Codes on Twitter quite a bit. Um, she was the champion inside of GitHub to push forward our, you know, getting off of our own fork to being on a major release of Rails version 5. Um, and she did a great job, and it saved us a lot of heartache because, um, you know, as time goes on, the, the, the framework introduces more and more security-related functions. And this is the last point. Somebody... I was trying to think of who it was talked about if I had a limited amount of, if I, if I had a limited amount of energy and I didn't, there's not a lot that I could, that I could do. And it might've been Neil, um, where would I focus my energy in, in terms of AppSec? And I think that the solution that was talked about, which I really like, was making, whatever you're, you're working in more secure. So writing like develop, writing functions that, oh yeah, it was Neil. He was talking about writing functions that make security easy for developers. So he talked about like, hey, if you want to invoke it, um, if you want developers to invoke it, it should only be more than like a line or two of code yeah. for them to actually be able to use it. Um, and that was one of the most valuable things they did early on uh, when, so when I say they, Patrick Toomey, Bento's, uh, Ortega's, um, and Neil, when they, and, you know, Greg talked about it too on podcast, Greg Osa, where that was one of the, the you know, important things they did is they came on and they started writing secure, secure, secure functions to secure the application. Um, and, uh, and in fact, one of the examples Neil shows was Ben's, um, been introducing a fix to, I forget which fix it was, to Rails to make things more secure. And then it was in the upstream version. But since we were forked off of the our own internal version, we didn't actually get that that, <laughs> that functionality he wrote the code for into our version. And that was when I think people were like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. So yeah, that was the gist of that talk. It was a really good talk, really compelling, good stuff. Interesting. Hey, yeah, like... Yeah, I, I mean, I think in, in, in security, oh, well, in AppSec in general, right? Like coming in as a consultant, it's always, that's always a difficult proposition because I do feel like, you know, what's expected out of me is typically a report, right? Right. And 
you know, I know internal to orgs, that's always one of the first things that I start talking about is like, okay, the security tooling, what is the security path for your developers, right? How are you giving, like, what are you presenting to them that makes them code securely, right? If you just let them use whatever framework or whatever they want, that's great, but it's also going to introduce any of the security vulnerabilities that exist. So we talked about the prototype issue with JavaScript earlier. That's, you know, if your developers you know, happen to use NPM and Node and they're using those, those, those libraries, you are vulnerable to those. If you present them with an alternative that's company sanctioned and easier to use, guess what? That's probably what they're going to use. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I totally get it. Right. You know, from a you know, company perspective, that makes more sense than, Hey, maybe we should go out and buy a DAST scanner. Right. Yeah. Even though it's probably, it might be easier to go buy a DAST scanner because then you've got some company that's scanning your external interface or whatever your external website, but it probably won't introduce as much security as actually spending the time to work with your developers. And I really wish there were better tooling for self-service. Like they've given in tools like Veracode and White Hat, they've given you know the ability for developers to access the tools, but it's just not easy for them to to grok it. And um, and then there's the comments about the tools themselves, which I won't get into because uh, don't. Why would I? I don't care that much. But um, yeah, I'm trying to think like. I don't really, I think, and we were talking about this at the conference, the thing, the things we'd like to see in a, in a security tool is being self-service for both devs and just easy to use um, in general and being, not having to go through some lengthy sales process to, to get it and for it to actually fucking work would be the other one. <laughs> like not, not be, you know, full of false positives or like, miss a bunch of stuff. Um, but yeah, really just being self-sufficient and um, the and not being like a crazy sales process. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, I think that's everything. I think that's everything from local MocoSec that I wanted to, to bring up. Sweet. No, I mean, it definitely sounds like, a good, like, yeah. Like I said earlier, I definitely had like FOMO last week and I was like, dang it, I should have just booked it when I was thinking about it and we should have just gone. But, you know, there, there, there's always next year. So do not miss it next year. It will be in Maui. I believe it's because Jim lives on Kauai, Neil lives on Kona and Jeremiah lives on uh, is it Ma Maui area or Oahu or something like that. Anyway, so that's where it's supposedly going to be next year. So uh, I'm definitely going back 100%. Um, no question about that. So, uh, yeah, Seth, get your ticket this time, man. Yeah, I will. I will. Don't. No worries. We were already talking about it. <laughs> I did laugh because at one one point in the pool, we had like, we we had like, um, uh, my favorite conferences. I'm pretty clear about this with people is Loco Mocosec, LastCon, and Hapsec Cali, and we had like all the organizers of those conferences in the pool at one time. It was kind of. Uh, someone made a joke, like, don't let a toaster fall in here. And uh, it was pretty, pretty cool. It was neat. There's just a lot of good attendees and, and a lot of good people to hang out with. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. How big was it this year? How many people? I, you know, I don't know the, the number, but I think it's less than 150 for people attending or oh. around that number. Okay. Yeah. It's not, it's not a huge, this is the thing. It's not huge, very intimate. You get to like, um, be surrounded by some some really uh, really good folks um, and here here here's some good talks uh, but really uh, you know we talk about hallway con and uh, it's very valuable for that too cool sweet uh, good so upcoming podcasts I think we've got um, women next week is women in AppSec okay yep. Um, I'm not sure exactly who the attendees are on that, right? Like I remember we had a couple that are going to be uh, joining us. Yeah, it's it's the Women in AppSec Committee. There's, I think, about six folks that are joining. Um, I have to look at my the uh, the invite, and that is uh, next week. Oh, that's going to be an early one, too. I think it's at 9.45 a.m. We're going to do it Eastern Standard Time and 7.45 your time, so it's going to be a really early one. So it's Zoe... Uh, uh, Jessica, Loredana, Gita, uh, Vandana, and Catherine. 
um, from the Women in AppSec Committee and at OWASP. So they're going to talk about some of the things that they've um, recently done, uh, uh, efforts that are ongoing, um, how you can support. It should be a good um, episode. And then I need to send out dates to all the folks I talked to at LocoMogoSeg so that we can actually get all those folks on the podcast and scheduled. So yeah. it's going to be a crazy couple months. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah, it'll be good. So cool. Well, yeah, sorry I missed it, but you know, it sounds like it was a good conference and yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep barreling along. So um, yeah, outside of that. Yeah, yeah. Find us on Twitter. Join us on Slack. Um, ask questions. Learn to code, right? You know, we can put resources up there. So um, it'll help you out. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else for today. Uh, but thanks for joining us, I guess, whoever's listening out there. And we'll see you all next week. Can anything, any last minute stuff? Nope. Just thanks to everyone for who for listening and watching and uh thanks. Okay. Cool. All right. Bye.